This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hello, and how's it going? Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter. So if you know anybody looking to hire or advance your career in ag tech or agribusiness, I'm your guy. Send me an email, tim at aggrad.com. Well, this show is focused on agricultural innovation, which usually breaks down into one of four categories, ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, agricultural sustainability, and or food security. What's exciting about today's episode is our guest really deals in all four of those categories in some way or another. We have on the show today, Euler Broplay, who is the founder and managing director of Vested World. Uh, Vested World is a venture capital firm that specializes in investments in the developing world, so in developing countries. Um, they, uh, they say they invest to create a more equitable and prosperous world, which I think is cool. From their website, they also say with an eye on high growth industries, we target early stage companies with tremendous potential to create meaningful jobs, provide fair wages and fuel widespread economic progress throughout their communities and regions. Euler is just an impressive guy and an interesting guy, which you're going to hear from in just a second as well. But a little bit of background on him. Uh, he was born in Liberia and lived there as a child, uh, educated in the U.S. and has since traveled extensively throughout Africa, Asia and Europe. He understands how access to capital has the potential to transform the developing world and to improve the lives of people. Uh, in his career as an attorney, so before starting Vested World, uh, he specialized in corporate transactions with leading law firms representing Fortune 100 companies, venture capital, and private equity firms, and emerging businesses worldwide. As an angel investor, he's helped fund several early stage businesses in sub-Saharan Africa, developing an acute understanding of the challenges and opportunities associated with early stage investing in emerging markets. We're going to get into everything from the risks and benefits uh, of investing uh, in developing countries. Specifically, he's going to tell us about some of the agricultural investments he's made. And it's just, uh, I think, a fascinating interview. So I'm pleased to share it with you here today. Euler's going to start off by telling us at a high level, what is Vested World? Yeah, Vested World is a venture fund focused on investing in early stage companies based in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. We focus on three primary countries, uh, Ghana, Nigeria, and Kenya. Um, and we also include four secondary countries. Uh, and those are Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda, and Ethiopia. Um, and we focus uh, on three industry segments, agribusinesses, consumer products and services, and enabling technology. So to what extent is a business leveraging technology that has already been developed and is being used elsewhere and applying it to solve a market-specific problem in the country region or region where they're based. And is this venture capital? So are these pretty early sort of seed stage type investments you're making? Yeah, so we we consider it venture capital. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because the term venture capital is kind of uh, takes on different meaning for different people. Uh, some people associate it with primarily technology investing. Um, but you know, when you look at the origins of the, of the term, uh, venture capital has been used to finance 
innovations for a very long time, uh, from things like the light bulb um, to, uh, you know, drugs that have, you know, kind of transformed the way we treat diseases. Mm-hmm. And so the way we look at it is we consider ourselves a venture fund because we're investing in a company at a very early stage in their life cycle. Um, but when you when you really break down the strategy and what were the types of businesses we're investing in relative to what um, other early stage investors invest in, our strategy looks more similar to a growth equity firm because typically we're investing in businesses that really there's there's already a proven um, business model for what they're doing. They're not really taking the same types of risks that an early stage technology company is taking. They're not taking you know, business model risks. They're not taking product market fit risk. They're not taking technology risk. They're really taking more risk around the execution uh, of their business plan and operations. And so because of that, if you were to compare us to another uh, venture fund or another growth equity fund, we'd probably look more like a growth equity fund just based on where we invest in the life of the business. Um, so hopefully that provides some clarification and doesn't confuse too many people. No, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's, it's, it's a venture fund, but uh, don't jump to the conclusion that you're talking about, you know, ideas, idea phase technology companies necessarily. And maybe to, to provide a little bit more insight on what those companies look like, could you just share maybe a company or two that's ag related that, that you've invested in? Yeah, one of the, the simplest ones I, I like to share is a company called Tomato Joss based in uh, Kaduna, uh, Nigeria. So Tomato Joss is uh, in the process of growing tomatoes uh, and processing it into paste. And just as a little bit of background, Nigeria is one of the largest uh, importers of, uh, sorry, one of the largest growers of uh, tomatoes in the world. Um, They're about the 14th largest grower of tomatoes in the world. But they're the largest importer of tomato paste. They import well over a billion dollars worth of tomato paste every year. And so I think one of the things that's really puzzling to people when they hear that is that why is a country that's growing a lot of tomatoes importing tomato paste? Why can't they just make it themselves? Well, the the value chain is extremely broken. So whereas the average farmer in California, which, you know, supplies a significant amount of the world's tomato paste, can grow up to 150 metric tons a hectare, uh, the average farmer in Nigeria, in comparison, is growing five metric tons a hectare. And so when you look at those numbers, it's just like night and day difference. It's not even like, are these people growing tomatoes on the same planet? Hmm. Um, And so what Tomato Joss has done is really figure out what it takes to to make tomato paste cost effectively. And the primary thing that you need to focus on is your your raw materials. Where is it coming from? Can you aggregate um, large enough quantities that you, you can able to run your processor uh, continuously for a very short period of time, uh, and so that you minimize cost um, and can maximize, you know, obviously your earnings um, from whatever the, your cost of your goods and the time you spent and energy you spend processing it. And so um, the company is in the process of increasing yields in Nigeria from five metric tons. They've been able to hit up to 50 metric tons on some some of their plots. Ultimately, the goal is to get to about 80 metric tons a hectare, uh, which is well above what they need to get to be able to, to produce paste cost effectively. Uh, and that tomato that they grow and the tomato grown by farmers that they're going to be working with at scale, they'll be working with over 2,000 farmers. All that will feed into their process 
um, their processing facility and, and allow them to, to make paste uh, cost effectively for lower than the imported cost of paste that is currently sold in the market, which is typically uh, paste that's been processed in, in China, um, has been transported, and upon arrival is, you know, three to six months old or older. Uh, so sub-quality sub um, um, paste uh, that's sold for uh, a relatively uh, large amount of money. So if they can make it a better quality paste for a cheaper amount, obviously that's a winning proposition both for uh, consumers in Nigeria and the company. So that's an example of one of the businesses in the ag space that we've invested in. That's really interesting. So their strategy is first, let's get to production uh, per hectare to where we need it to be. And then we can start processing. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And that's the, the critical part of this equation. Can you produce, can you grow tomatoes at, at scale um, with high enough yields? Um, and so that's that's what they've been addressing. And, and where Vested World would come in, they would say, hey, look, in order to get the production up, it's going to take some investment on, on our part to uh, to work with these farmers to help them with their production. And then you would invest. And then down the road, the idea is if, if this all plays out um, and they've got the processing capabilities, it could be uh, a really sound investment for you. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, we when we invested in Tomato Joss, they were in the process of one, identifying a larger plot of land where they could go to grow tomatoes that was close to um, to water. So they needed uh, to either be close to a river or a dam or some sort of natural uh, source of irrigation because to- tomatoes need, need irrigation. Um, they needed to hire people that, you know, have the relevant knowledge and ability to do this. They needed um, to fund working capital expenses. So all those things were, were what we funded. But, at, you know, at the core... One of the core things underlying our investment was, has this team proven that they're able to grow tomatoes at the level that they need to? And the answer um, just immediately prior to us investing was yes, because in that growing season, some of their plots were able to hit, you know, as I mentioned, up to 50 tons a hectare. So obviously we knew they've, they've gone through the process of trying to figure out what it takes to grow tomatoes at the yields that they need to. And now it's simply taking what they've learned from prior growing seasons and replicating it and scaling it up. Um, so that's that's what we invested in, and um, uh, that's what the company has been working on, continuing to execute on. That's that's really interesting, and it seems like a really uh, a, a sort of a unique unique problem. Um, to maybe the developing world where it's like we've got we're producing this but but then we're importing it it's kind of a a as you said kind of a value chain infrastructure type uh issue is that why you've decided to focus on sub-saharan africa's problems like that or or what what drew you to limiting your investments to to that part of the world so one of the reasons we chose that part of the world is is when you look around the world i feel like from an economic development standpoint, Sub-Saharan Africa really is the last economic frontier. Um, I mean, when you most countries um, in the on the continent are either still where they were uh, upon gaining independence in the mid 1900s, or they're you know they've kind of fallen back a little bit. And it's especially striking when you compare many African countries, countries like Ghana, Nigeria, and Kenya to um, countries like South Korea and Taiwan and uh, Singapore, you know, when you look back in the 1950s, for the most part, these countries are all on par. They were even with one another from an economic development standpoint. Then you fast forward to today, and it's really hard to imagine 
a country like Singapore being uh, on par with a country like Ghana any time in the last, you know, 80 years. Um, Singapore is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, one of the most developed countries in the world. Um, Ghana, um, you know, has made some strides, but certainly nothing close to what Singapore has been able to achieve. Uh, same thing with South Korea. And when you take a country like South Korea uh, and you look at where they were in the 50s, right after the, the Korean War, it was a predominantly agrarian uh, economy. I mean, most people were engaged in agriculture at a subsistence level. And then over the years, they had a, they prioritized how do we um, increase our resiliency and, and, and our ability to supply our population with the food that they need. How do we grow the food that we're consuming? And so as a result, there was this intense focus on increasing ag productivity. And as they improved, you needed less people on the farm because each farm was more productive and needed, it had machines and needed less labor generally. And that labor tended to, to shift towards more manufacturing labor intensive um, industries. And so manufacturing started to develop, people earn more, they were able to send their kids to school, the cost of labor rose. And as a result of that, um, and manufacturing efficiency increased. So again, you needed less people um, making things in factories. And so they shifted more to services and technology driven industries. Um, and you really just haven't seen that sort of progression in many African countries. You know, when you look at the number of people engaged in agriculture and most African countries, it's somewhere between 60 and 80% of the population still relies on ag for their livelihood, most of them at a subsistence level. Uh, most of them are achieving yields that more developed countries like the U.S. achieved in the early 1900s. Um, and we've made so much um, advancement in uh, understanding plant genetics and how do we increase yields. And almost, it seems like none of that knowledge has been applied to, to African countries. And so that just seemed like an obvious opportunity for investment for us um, because it's it's like going into a game, um, knowing, having like your playbook for what you need to do in order to win. Hmm. Um, and so it was just, we just felt like there was so many opportunities here. The tomato paste being one, we've got other agricultural investments in, in other parts of the continent, uh, but it's simply taking best practices that have been, you know, gained and, uh, perfected over several decades in more developed countries and other developing countries and applying it to um, the countries that we're investing in. And obviously, you're going to need to make tweaks uh, for, to match the local conditions. Uh, soil isn't going to be the same in, in Uganda as it is in, you know, uh, Iowa. And so you've got to adjust for things like that. Uh, you've got to adjust for the ecosystem. But for the most part, uh, these are tiny tweaks that are pretty manageable. Um, but the playbook still works. And so we wanted to take that and, and just expand upon it and try to leverage knowledge that we already have globally um, and apply it in a way that, you know, spurs development, uh, uh, helps these economies advance, help people uh, improve their live livelihoods. Uh, and, and generally, we think everyone can benefit um, if we're able to successfully invest in businesses that you know, as they scale, increase productivity, employ people, pay those people fair wages, allow them to earn a better living for themselves and their families. So that's those are some of the reasons why we decided to focus on the countries that we invest in. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and actually, you know, for me, the, 
the only country I've had the chance to visit on the African continent um, has been Liberia. Uh, and actually, it, yeah. was, it was quite a, a life-changing experience for me. And I don't use that term lightly um, to, to get to experience. So for, for those who are listening that have never been to the African continent, um, and, and about 80% of our listeners are in North America, to give you an idea, could you give us a sense? I know you were born in Liberia. Can you give us a sense what it was like growing up there and, and, um, and, and kind of paint a picture for, for people who have never been uh, to West Africa. Yeah, so uh, in in an alternate world, Liberia would be an ideal place to live. It's, it's got endless coastline, beautiful beaches, um, just above the equator, so nice warm weather year-round, um, you know, forests and, and mountains that you could go to for hikes. Um, but unfortunately, Liberia, just for many reasons, just hasn't fully realized its potential. So I was born uh, in Liberia during um, uh, a time when a dictator uh, was in, in power, Samuel Doe. Uh, and prior to Doe's uh, coup, Liberia had been, you know, formed by slaves that had left the U.S. in the early 1800s. And so it's the oldest um, republic in, in Africa, oldest country. Ethiopia likes to claim like they're the oldest country. Uh, and my wife is Ethiopian. We joke about Ethiopian and we joke about this all the time. Uh, but Ethiopia didn't declare and, and claim its independence until the, probably a hundred years after after Liberia. Uh, so I like to hang that over our head. Um, but throughout Liberia's history, um, even though these freed slaves, the American Liberians who set up the country, only constituted you know two and a half, three percent of the population, they controlled uh, the government and everything in the country, um, and obviously that created. Uh, just the seeds for uh, discontent and um, people who were indigenous to the area uh, were unhappy with their disenfranchisement. They weren't allowed to vote until the, I think it was 19, 1950s or 60s. Um, and ultimately that all boiled up into what, um, and Doe kind of took that, those sentiments and, and orchestrated a coup. Um, and so during his period, the country was, was, was poorly managed. Um, people, it was kind of a free-for-all where everyone was trying to look out for themselves. Um, and that led to the Liberian Civil War, which was kind of one of the most brutal and longest-lasting civil wars uh, on the continent. And, and so that's the, the Liberia I kind of grew up in in the, in the 80s where, where things were starting to decline. Uh, U.S. support for the country um, was no longer as strong as it previously had been as a result of you know, just global dynamics. The Cold War was ending. Uh, Russia or the Soviet Union and the U.S. were no longer competing for influence in, in these parts parts of the world. Uh, and so as a result, you had a little less aid going there and um, industry wasn't being developed as, as much as it could have. A lot of uh, corruption was taking natural resources uh, and not really using it in a productive manner to, to spur growth in the country. And so Liberia suffered as a result. Um, and so that's that's the country I, I left uh, and we moved to the U.S., uh, but I just always maintain an interest in doing something in Liberia and Africa more broadly. Um, and fortunately, uh, the civil war ended and Liberia has started to get back on its on its feet. Uh, it's taken its hits here and there. I mean, you, everyone knows about the Ebola crisis from a few years ago. Uh, but generally, I think um, people are optimistic about where Liberia is going um, with the government that's in place and hopes that, you know, we can we can get things on track. 
And, and how old were you when you left Liberia to come to the U.S.? So I, I was nine years old when I, I left Liberia. So only few people can detect my accent. It's it's slight. And when I talk to my parents and, and family, it comes out more. <laughs> Otherwise, it's, it's not as thick. No, yeah, I would have never never detected it had I not uh, learned about your background before. Um, you you gave us the example of tomato joss, how you know how valuable that could be for for the country of Nigeria, and also it could be a very profitable investment. I'm I'm just curious in general, how do you balance uh, the needs of the communities that you're impacting with? Obviously, you've got shareholders that expect also to get a, a good return. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily a trade off. That that that's probably a misnomer. But but how do you kind of balance those two factors? Yeah, and and that's I think what you said is exactly right. It's not a trade off. It you can have your cake and you can eat it too. Um, I think you know as we look at these businesses, um, as the business does well, um, its employees should do well, uh, and investors will do well as well. So take take a company like. Tomato Joss, for example, as Tomato Joss grows, they're going to be buying more tomatoes uh, from these 2,000 farmers that they're working with. Each of those farmers have the potential to earn up to five, six times more than they're currently earning, taking them instantly above um, the national uh, average earnings uh, for someone in Nigeria. And as Tomato Joss buys more tomatoes, they're going to be able to make more tomato paste and sell that tomato paste to people in the market who, who want that product and it's going to earn more revenue. And so that's going to benefit um, their, their investors like us. Uh, and so the, the two things are mutually exclusive. I think there are times where a company may try to, to cut, cut corners in order to maximize their revenue and their profits. But generally speaking, those aren't necessarily the best way to go because if, you, if you're not paying your employees well or if you're a bad partner to your suppliers, they're not going to supply you. And so that puts you back in a, in a really bad position if you can't get access to the workforce that you need or the raw materials that you need. It's going to end up hurting your revenue. Your top line revenue growth is going to hurt your profitability. It's going to impact your investors' return. So I, my view is that if you do well by the people that you're working with, the people that are both employees and suppliers to your business, uh, you're going to do well to your, by your investors. Your company is going to perform better. Um, and everyone benefits from it. So that's how we really look at um, that trade-off. We don't think it's a trade-off at all between the needs and, and, um, of the community and, and what the investors' uh, expectations are. It, it would seem like investments like this may have a longer time horizon than what people normally think about with, with VC investing. Is that, is that accurate? Uh, and, and if so, does that just kind of attract a different type of investor? Um, so, yeah, so a typical venture invest, investment fund uh, will want to hold their investment for somewhere between five to seven years. And, you know, they have the ability to hold it for 10 years. And with various sort of extensions, you can increase that to four um, to 14 or 15 years. Um, so our holding period is actually similar to what a venture fund here in the U.S. would expect. Um, and I think the d- primary difference is, whereas a venture fund in the U.S. is probably anticipating selling their interest when the company goes public, uh, we don't anticipate any of our companies being uh, able to go public at the end of our investment holding period. Uh, the most likely exit for us will be to a slightly larger investor who's coming on to help take that company to the to the next level. Um, and so it's 
same holding period, just different um, expectations for how we're going to exit the business. I, I know in some developing countries, uh, sometimes getting traditional lending can can be an issue. Uh, is that a consideration when you're making these types of investments? Is boy, are they going to need a little bit more money because they can't just go get a business loan like they might be able to in another country? Or or is my line of thinking there just not based on false assumptions? No, your your line of thinking is exactly accurate, and um, you know, working capital and just capital requirements is one of the biggest. Um, issues when we look at businesses of what's going to be their ability to raise both debt and equity financing uh, at a later stage to continue the fuel growth. Uh, we're not a large fund by any means, and we can't uh, fund a company's growth uh, by ourselves. And so we have to, you know, really assess the business capital needs uh, and see what are the various sources out there. Fortunately, um, you know, there are Sources that are available, whether it's grant funding, uh, some debt funding and, and equity financing uh, from investors, but it's nowhere near the, the level needed uh, in these markets. It's slowly improving. Um, and some things that we really focus on with businesses is, is trying to identify who potential funders are, how do we position them in the best best light and, and, and improve their ability to, to get financing from those, from those types of investors and lenders. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, if you're able to execute successfully, you're going to be able to attract capital. And so we really try to drive that home with, with our portfolio companies. But access to funding, access to financing is, is extremely low. Banks generally don't lend to these types of businesses. Um, there are not enough equity investors out there. Um, grant funding uh, can be hard to obtain. So it's, it's a big challenge um, in the countries that we invest in. Yeah, I've heard you or I've read you write about uh, fierce risks, and I think I actually watched a video where you mentioned it as well. Can can you explain what what fierce risks are and how they kind of play into your model? Yeah, so when we started talking to investors, the same issues kept coming up. Um, they were concerned about, you know, what if you know we invest in something and the person steals the money or some government official uh, takes the company. Uh, and all these things, other like currency risk and war and conflict. And and so we, we were like, how can we describe this and create a framework for assessing it and, and describe how we like doing our investment process? We try to understand what these risks are and figure out ways that the company can mitigate them. And so uh, we came up with the acronym FIERCE, F-I-E-R-C-E. And so what the FIERCE risks are uh, fraud, instability, expropriation, regulatory risk, uh, currency risk, and enforcement of contracts. And so it's those litany of risks that, that you know, people have different ways of expressing it, but that's really at the root of many uh, investors' hesitance uh, to invest in Africa. They feel like the risks around these areas are, are larger in sub-Saharan Africa than they are in other jurisdictions. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's true, but what we do with each investment that we make is help, um, well, it's more for internal purposes, but we share this with our, our LPs if they're interested. But we, we assess each of these risks and, and give a, a rating on how high or low we think that risk is relative to this specific company and what exactly uh, the factors are that contribute to that, to that rating. Uh, and then we also discuss what the company has done or can do to mitigate the risk. 
Um, and so some of them are within the control of the company. So with, with respect to fraud, a lot of that's on us, our knowledge of the entrepreneur and, and comfort with their ability, and then also the, the policies that the company puts in place with respect to dealing with government officials and other players in, in the markets in which they're operating. Um, instability, it's more of a macro level risk. So to what extent is there is there conflict or political instability in the country? And, and what are what is the country doing to try to resolve those those uh, issues? Um, regulatory risk is understanding the, the regulatory environment in the industry that that company is operating in. So for example, we um, the tomato joss investment, there was conversations around banning imports. Obviously that would be great for tomato joss. <laughs> so yeah. that's something we want, wanted to understand and, and get a better sense of how likely it was to occur. Um, and so that's a beneficial uh, uh, event if it were to ha- were to happen. Whereas, if they were to remove barriers and make it easier to import tomato paste, that's bad for tomato jobs. So we need to understand uh, what the risks are from a regulatory standpoint. Um, currency, that's nothing the, con- the company can do uh, about that. And most of these companies are so small that they can't um, buy tools to um, hedge uh, or control their currency risks. And so they just have to manage that extremely well and, and be um, be aware of how shifts in, in, in currency value will impact their operations and their earnings. Um, and then enforcement of contracts. I think there a lot of people are concerned with whether counterparties to contractual arrangements will actually uphold their end of the bargain. And then also whether the contracts we enter into with, with these companies we're investing in are enforceable. And, you know, one of the things that's been really promising uh, across the continent is um, an understanding of the value and importance of enforcing contracts. And so each of these countries have uh, signed on to international arbitration agreement that uh, allow an arbitrator's decision, regardless of where it's rendered, to be enforceable in those countries. Mm. Uh, in fact, in Kenya, there was a case that went to, Supreme, to the Supreme Court where one uh, a foreign party uh, tried to enforce uh, arbitrator's decision and the local party who the judgment was against uh, didn't want to comply with the arbitrator's decision. The foreign party sued in Kenyan court. The case went up to the Supreme Court, and ultimately the Supreme Court said that the arbitrator's decision was enforceable and the local party had to comply. So things like that really um, enhance and, and, and um, you know make investors more comfortable with their ability to enforce uh, contracts in these places. Um, and then, you know, I, I mentioned expropriation as one of the risks. People are always concerned, I think, primarily based on what went on in Latin America for some time, that the government will simply decide to expropriate private businesses and private property. And and again, this is a risk that we usually assess as extremely low. Um, most countries in Kenya's constitution uh, has, you know, the government won't take private property. And if they do take it, uh, the owners of that has to be fairly compensated and they have a mechanism through which um, compensation for uh, eminent domain type takings uh, can be um, uh, judged and valued. So it's it's the framework that we establish we think is very helpful just to, to acknowledge to investors that yes, we know there are risks associated with investing in these, com- in these countries and here's how we assess those risks and here's where things play out. And so they know we're not we're not sleeping at the wheel. We're we're actually taking those risks seriously and, and thinking through through them in a in a logical manner. 
And and based on those risks, you, you've decided to to pursue investments in some countries and, and probably avoid investments in, in some other countries at this point. Yeah. So we're not investing in the DRC. Right. We're not investing in, in Burundi. We're not investing in. Um, so there are, are countries that, you know, are you know, so Burundi and South Sudan is another one that are within kind of the region that we like to invest in. But uh, for a number of the reasons decided, uh, it just doesn't make sense to invest in, in those countries right now. The conditions aren't aren't there. We don't feel comfortable with the stability um, of the countries. We don't um, feel comfortable with the regulatory environment. Um, so, um, yeah, it's it definitely uh, it influences where we invest, but it also also influences where we don't invest. Okay. Yeah. Euler, this has been really fascinating. I mean, I, I like I said at the top of the show, I think I could we could talk for several episodes about this stuff. Maybe just to wrap us up, if you don't mind, um, could you kind of paint a picture for us of the the, the future of agriculture in, in Africa as you see it? You know, a couple decades from now, how things look different? Yeah, I think you know, several decades from now, I hope that you know, Africa is African countries are able to address a lot of the food security issues that some of these countries are facing, um, especially as we're staring down significant environmental challenges, uh, whether it's drought uh, or, um, you know, diseases, uh, pests that could affect crops. Um, We have still not seen the green revolution that many other um, places around the world have experienced in Africa. And so several decades from now, I hope we can we can look around and say we did it. That you know we've increased yields uh, on the continent. Um, people are are more prosperous. People are 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 not hungry. Uh, we've addressed kind of all the food security issues, and these economies are thriving as a result of developing their agricultural sector. And uh, they are now as efficient or close to being as efficient um, in producing similar yields uh, to what other countries around the world are, um, and are processing. Uh, materials in the finished goods rather than simply exporting exporting them to other countries for them to be finished um, and then you, you you know there's a whole lot of you know just basic metrics so 60 percent or so of the world's arable uncultivated arable land is in sub-saharan Africa now there may be um, people who say that you know farming practices today are not sustainable and we shouldn't try to encourage and and spread that in other parts of the world, but to the extent we can do this in a in a way that's sustainable um, and 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 respects the uh, environment and the land, I, I think we should try to achieve as um, farm as much of the land as as we need to in order to meet the growing uh, food demand um, in in these markets and elsewhere around the world. So I, I just want to see a lot lot of progress with respect to. Uh, addressing food security and and developing the ag sector throughout the continent. Great. Well, Euler, thank you so much. If if anybody wants to learn more about kind of the stuff you've shared, is the Vested World website the best place to send them? Yeah, we were still we need to update our site, but yeah, Vested World the website is is a good place to go. And I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm not on any of the other social media channels, but but yeah, those are some of the good places to to find us. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you so much, Tim. And thanks for for all that you're doing uh, in this space and just, you know, highlighting interesting um, things going on in the sector, innovations and and people working in in this area. I think you're doing really great work. So thank you for that.
big thank you to Euler for taking the time to be on the show and share his uh, perspective on the interesting work he's doing with Vested World. Uh, as I mentioned during that interview, my trip to Liberia was really perspective changing for me to understand what it's like um, to live in, in the developing world and some of the challenges associated with ag development. It's not just access to technology. As Euler showed you, it does require um, solving several problems to get these businesses off the ground, but the benefits when doing so are just tremendous. So I enjoyed that with Euler. I hope you did too. Let me know on Twitter if you have any thoughts related to this episode or any others we do. I'm at Tim Hamrich, and I just want to thank you for your time, for your attention, and for your interest in making the world a better place through ag innovation. Thanks so much. We'll be back next week, and I hope you'll join us. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Hey.